Hello, brothers and sisters. This is Zach Prima. I'm here with Pastor Alex, and we're here for another Walking Together podcast. Alex, can you explain to anybody listening to this, what's the point of this podcast? Uh, yeah. Um, we began this podcast in the context of the uh, shutdown connected to COVID. Um, it was just another way to stay connected to folks. It was a more casual environment in which to have conversation about matters related to the Christian life and all that. And um, I think we enjoyed doing it. Um, some people asked if we could continue doing it. And mm. so it's just kind of a, um, a further opportunity to people advance. People as in fans, you could say? <laughs> yeah, the, the six or seven of them. And um, no, but I think um, it's, it's, a, it's a different medium for doing the things we're called to do in the church, mm. that is discipling the people of God. And so having an environment like this that's more Q&A oriented, mm. more boots on the ground, practical Christian life, application oriented... Um, we just felt was a good a good thing to offer. Um, we can offer it at a fairly low cost, obviously. It doesn't mm. take a lot of time to put these together. So, um, yeah, so if it's helpful to folks, great. If they don't listen to it, I don't know that they're missing a whole lot. But uh, that's that's the basic point of this podcast. So you view this as sort of an extension, more or less, of the teaching ministry of Emmanuel? Yeah, and, and particularly, you know, I, I don't—we rarely develop, you know, uh, uh, doctrinal points— you know, to a great degree, it is trying to understand better how do these these doctrines or these issues work themselves out in the life of the Christian. So it's mm. definitely oriented toward being very practical, bringing the teaching ministry home mm. on, on certain issues. The plan is to release maybe a couple of these a month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's been the approach so far, as long as it's useful to people. Yeah, and our, our goal is to uh, put these out usually correlated to what we're going through as a church, whether that's a Sunday school class, an equip class, um, something that's important to the life of the church, or associated with themes going on in your in your preaching as well, mm-hmm. which relates to, to our topic today, which is the topic of the gospel and, and how the gospel affects marriage. Mm-hmm. As before we get into even very much marriage in particular, I wanted to ask you, we live in a day and age where gospel has very many meanings, the mm-hmm. word gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a style of music called gospel. Uh, a lot of people in the world talk about, oh man, that's gospel, that, which just means true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talk about having gospel conversations, which could be conversations where we share the gospel with an unbeliever or conversations where gospel themes come up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we like to use the word gospel as an adjective. I want to have gospel children. I want to have a gospel marriage. <laughs> you and I are having a gospel podcast right now, having a gospel conversation. Um, with, with all that confusion, and uh, you could say semantic overload with the word gospel. Uh-huh. Can you tell me what is the actual gospel and how does the actual gospel affect our lives? Yeah, I, I guess I would just first say I think it's okay if the gospel has a broader you know, range of usage um, because in the Bible, the, 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 the word gospel can have a kind of, kind of wide range. And so I, I think, um, uh, just like with many words, you know, they can mean something more narrowly, more broadly, depending on how they're used in a certain context. So I don't mind the idea of there being gospel music or something like that. But, but in the Bible, the gospel is a pretty specific thing, at least when, when it's talked about, you know, Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, wants to remind the Corinthians of, 
of the gospel that I preach to you. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is a pretty, a pretty specific meaning to that word, and it's something like um, what God has done in Christ uh, in his incarnation, death, and resurrection to make a way of salvation for sinners through repentance and faith. Um, it is bound up in the historical events of what God has done in his son, the Lord Jesus. And the gospel uh, is a summons to response. It's a response to a message, a response to historical events. And so that's one of the biggest things I'm looking for when, I, when I'm talking to people about the gospel and evaluating their understanding of the gospel. Is there a sense of what God has done, what Christ mm-hmm. has done? Is there a sense of the connection between the death of the Son of God and my sins, his resurrection and my life? Um, it's, it's bound up in those, those historical events. Hmm. Well, Alex, relate that to, to marriage for us. What are ways the gospel, the, the message you referred to, the, the facts of the gospel, affect mm-hmm. marriage? Well, in a number of ways. I recently did a class on this and mentioned, I think the way I presented it was five gospel principles hmm. for healthy marriages. Um, and so the first of those was that the, the gospel presents a realistic view of sin. So the gospel, from the get-go, it is good news to sinners. It's not good news to angels mm-hmm. or saints in heaven. It means good news to sinners. It addresses us in our sins, and it acknowledges that we are all in sin, that we all have a sin nature, that we all commit sinful acts. It is good news to sinners. Which means, for marriages, I mean, the, the, the way that would apply is that in our marriages, we should appreciate we are sinners. Yeah. It should bring a tone of realism. We are sinners who, every day, need the gospel, need the good news, need the grace that's shown in Christ Jesus. And so that would be like one, one gospel principle that affects and has bearing you know, on our marriages. Uh, the gospel further teaches us that, that real change is possible, that true redemption can take place, that we can be saved from our sins and we can be transformed. And so there is no place in any Christian marriage for a husband or a wife to say, you know what, I, I can't change. Hmm. I, can't, I can't grow. I can't, um, I, 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 I can't be different. The Bible teaches that, that, the gospel teaches us that we're born again to a living hope. We're transformed. Yeah. We're made new creatures in Christ Jesus, and therefore change is always possible. Hmm. Transformation Amen. is always possible. And that is one of the things the Lord is doing in saving us. I mean, he, he gives us a new nature, but then little by little, he sanctifies us and transforms us. So that would be another way in which the gospel touches on marriage. The gospel is a call to repentance and forgiveness. And we should remember that's not a one-time call. Um, sorry, repentance and faith. Hmm. It, it's it's an ongoing call. Yeah, and we see pictured in the gospel the dynamics of repentance on the one hand and forgiveness on the other. So in the gospel, we're called to repentance, and we're told that we can freely acknowledge our sins, and and know that we will be received in the acknowledgement of our sins. We can admit we're sinners. The gospel frees us to do that. Similarly, in marriage, we should be pretty routine, pretty open about admitting that we're sinners. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I heard of a husband. Who um, he was a pastor, and he when he was first married to his wife, he commissioned in their marriage a study of the principle of forgiveness, and apparently he said to her, "I, I want us to study this together because you're going to be doing a lot of forgiving, hmm. you know. Yeah, um, I'm going to be repenting a lot. Let's get comfortable with that. Spouses should routinely repent to each other, mm-hmm. acknowledge sin and failure, and on the flip side of that." forgiveness should be freely dispensed in a marriage. I mean, that should just be part of the air we breathe, repentance, forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Acknowledgement of sin, 
dispensing of grace because mm. the gospel prepares us for that. This is the logic of, 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 of the New Testament writers, like in Ephesians 4, I think it's verse 29, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. I have a pattern for forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. So anyway, these are just the sorts of things that, that I think are, um, are ways in which the gospel directly touches on our marriages. Hmm. And if we're going to have a gospel-centered marriage, these are some of the principles that are at play. Do you think the gospel relates to marriage in a unique way? instead of other institutions or facets of our life? Yes and no. No in the sense that those principles I just mentioned would would affect every every possible relationship mm-hmm. in our lives. So a, the gospel giving us a realistic view of sin or the gospel promising the power of change mm. or the gospel equipping us with the dynamics of repentance and forgiveness or, or I think one of the principles I mentioned was the gospel teaching us that we can always restart those sorts of principles would apply in relationships between parents and children. They would apply in relationships between brothers and sisters in the church. Or they would just the gospel touches on all of our relationships. Yes, um, even some of the commands I just mentioned from Scripture that are based on the gospel are talking about how the church should be living in relationship to one another. So, but the, the gospel has a unique bearing upon marriage in that marriage itself is designed to display the gospel in an utterly unique way. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking here, of, of course, Ephesians 5, which um, which says that one of the things that's going on in marriage is this display, this picture, this, this, this manifestation of the gospel itself. And in that picture, the particular roles the husband and wife are playing that are getting across this message of the gospel, the husband representing the self-sacrificial love of Christ that looks like the laying down of one's life. Um, the church responding in submission and in affection um, to Christ's initiatives. So wives submitting to husbands, husbands leading their wives in a self-sacrificial way. There's a display there. And that's where Paul says at the end of, of that passage in Ephesians 5, maybe verse 31 or 32, that he, he, he quotes Genesis 2, the one flesh union between men and women. He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Yeah. So that marriage itself as a creation ordinance, as mm-hmm. an institution, is providing a dramatic portrayal of the gospel mm. in a way that really no other relationship does. You already spoke to this a little bit, but can you speak more to the need for realistic expectations in marriage? Well, I, I just think it's a practical, as a practical matter, couples don't often bring realistic expectations to marriage. But it's expectations on a number of levels. Like, like, this is just my observation. I think most veteran pastors would agree with this, and most veteran marriages and Christians would agree with this. People have um, pretty low expectations for how much sin is going to be involved in their marriage, and by that I mean they don't understand enough how much sin is going to be a factor in marriage. I think most couples come into marriage as idealists, they're very quickly acquainted with the realism of marriage. A lot of marriages struggle in the early years because they are appreciating just how much, A, my spouse, my partner is a sinner and how much I'm a sinner. And and I didn't think it was going to be like this. And so there's they just don't come in to marriage with the realistic expectations concerning sin. Mm-hmm. But then I want to say to those couples at the same time, it's often true that couples have low expectations for the power of grace hmm. and what it can do in a marriage. And so just often, 
couples can be defeatist, they can be hopeless. Well, I'm never going to change, or she's never going to change, or he's never going to change. And and they don't think of, of the power of grace at work over the long term. And um, I think a lot of couples get burnt out because they, they think, well, you know, for example, it's not uncommon to hear a husband or a wife say, well, I've tolerated this for six months now. Yeah. You know, you, you would think something's going to change, but mm-hmm. hey, look, how, how long am I supposed to put up with this? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm like, brother, six months, <laughs> you know, this might be, this might be, you know, 25 years before, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm just saying, I think people are, if it's not immediate, if I, I you know, I, hey, I've put in my, my bit and I've tolerated this for a little bit. And if this can't change, I'm done. You know, that's, that's typically our attitude. And, and we, we, we don't have a sense of how grace works and how it can change people over the long term. And it's just always this way, almost always this way. Couples that have had fruitful marriages and healthy marriages that reach the 30-year mark, the 40-year mark, the 50-year mark, they can almost always testify to dark places in their marriage where they thought, I didn't know we were going to get out of this. Mm-hmm. I never thought I could have the marriage now uh, that I have. Yeah. I never thought... I could be in this position. I never thought that grace could triumph in these ways. And so I'm usually in the position with the younger couples of trying to put that before them. Hmm. I know this looks bleak now or dark now or hard now, but the grace of God to change us is so much greater than all our sin. And um, yeah. So in light of those realistic expectations, what should Christians aspire for their marriages to be like in light, in light of those realistic expectations? So, so if I'm to expect... Marriage is going to be fraught with trials. Marriage is a union between two sinners mm-hmm. and all the implications of that. And I set my expectations right. Mm-hmm. What should I aspire for my marriage to be like in light of that realistic expectation? Yeah, I might be getting hung up on your word aspire. So I, I would I would say like um, I would expect my marriage is going to be challenging. Mm-hmm. It's going to be deeply sanctifying. It's going to be at times disappointing. It's going to be at times even disillusioning. Mm-hmm. Okay. I would expect that. I would aspire, though, to have a functionally Christian marriage where the dynamics of grace and repentance and forgiveness are frequent and regular, where I am both giving and receiving help in the fight for sanctification and growth in godliness. So my partner, if, if she is a Christian, he is a Christian, is going to help me grow as a Christian, and I have the great privilege of helping them grow as a Christian. Marriage is not primarily about my constant, perpetual, unimpaired, unabated happiness at all times. But um, I can't expect to have a happy marriage and a joyful marriage and to know joys that um, uh, perhaps I didn't think were possible or I had no reference for before I was married or even the early years of marriage. Um, I should expect uh, that we're going to help one another to heaven. And along the way, we're going to have lots of trials, and we're going to have lots of difficulties. We're also going to have lots of joys and lots of wonderful seasons. And the Lord is going to use us in my life to draw me closer to Him and to make me more like Christ. And um, yeah, and I think I think couples should aspire, you know, to to have happy marriages. I, mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't mean to sound like, well, you really just need to recognize marriage is a tough slog or yes. something like that. Yeah. I think a lot of people are very happy in their, their marriages as Christians. You should aspire to be happy. Um, but, but the means to happiness will be growth in godliness, and yeah. growth in love and commitment to each other. And um, yeah. So if I could sum that up in a nice pithy phrase, something like um, 
love is going to be far more costly than you realized. Mm-hmm. And love is going to be far more wonderful mm-hmm. and life-giving mm-hmm. than you realized in the context of marriage. Mm. Yeah, I just think of what marriage, if, as far as what it can accomplish, not just for my happiness, but for, for my walk with Christ. Mm. It's, it's one of those wonderful opportunities God uses to help us grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like uh, I've, I've blessed God in my past that every season of life God puts me through, any challenge is an opportunity to usually confront some sort of sin in my life mm-hmm. and for, for the Spirit to convict me. So I, I could think, you know, as a single man struggling with, with lust— and then growing in that, fight, going to war with that sin, and then entering marriage and thinking, well, I could put the kibosh on this sin. I can grow in, in, in many ways in this sin. Now I won't struggle with sin anymore. Yeah, yeah. Only to find yeah. I'm a selfish person. Yeah. I'm a person that needs to that has so many untidy corners in my heart, mm-hmm. so many areas that I need to confront. And marriage is one way of confronting those sins, yeah. things you wouldn't have seen otherwise in your life, mm-hmm. and draws you closer to that person, but also to Christ himself. Yeah, well, this is the way, you know, it came to expression in my marriage, like, I thought I was a pretty patient guy hmm. when I was single, but then I, I realized my patience is never tested, because hmm. <laughs> it's just me, myself, and me all the time, so I don't have to... I don't have to deny myself. Yep. I don't have to put up with anyone else's problems, whatever. You know, and then I realized, I, actually, I'm not a patient person. After I got married, after I had kids, I'm not a patient person. I just was in a situation where my patience was never tested. Hmm. And when it was tested, I found out I'm pretty impatient. You mm-hmm. know, and so, yeah, relationships like marriage have uh, the ability to stretch us and expose our sins, and that's good. It mm. helps us in our sanctification. Mm. I don't know if it was one of within one of your principles that you laid out a couple weeks ago in your class, Alex. But the topic came up uh, came up um, of the difference between forgiveness in the context of marriage and complete reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So, so my question is: you know, Is there a difference between forgiveness? and total reconciliation in the context of a relationship. Mm-hmm. So so if we're to give free and swift forgiveness, um, husband offends his wife, seeks forgiveness with his wife, th- does that mean complete restoration of, of relationship? Yeah, it, it would entirely depend on, on the situation, but there's a few principles that should be put in place. Number one, for the Christian, forgiveness is never optional. It's just never optional. To extend um, forgiveness. Yeah. 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 Um, you have no right, no option as a Christian not to extend forgiveness toward those who sin against you. And the Bible's comments on this are pretty, pretty stark. Like, mm-hmm. if you don't forgive people, you'll go to hell. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Bible says that explicitly in a few places, you know. So... So I recognize I must forgive. And, and the reason is not just so I won't go to hell. The reason is God ha- in Christ has forgiven me. Hmm. So, so, so you know, the, the, old, the, the parable that Jesus uses is with the, the man who has this large debt and he can't pay it and his master forgives him. But then that man has someone below him who can't pay the debt. And that man is very severe with the one who can't repay his debt. He doesn't recognize I've been shown this great grace so that I could show grace to others, you know. So that principle should be in place. I always extend forgiveness. In marriage, unforgiveness is a non-option, and it is sub-Christian. Okay? At the same time, uh, principle, 
that should be established is that forgiveness and trust or forgiveness and respect are not the same things. Though forgiveness is always granted freely, trust is almost never granted freely. Hmm. Trust is earned, mm-hmm. right? So, so if, if, um, if my spouse has lost my trust, well, it doesn't mean that I can't forgive my spouse, but sin has consequences. And one of those may be losing trust for a time or something like that, you know? So, so I would just want to help couples distinguish between those two things. Forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. Forgiveness and respect are not the same things. Um, but then I, I would say too, I mean, the issue of love needs to be brought into the picture that love, love moves toward restoration. Forgiveness moves toward restoration. And so though sin has consequences and can entail some, some suspension of, of intimacy for a time or a suspension of closeness for a time, Love and forgiveness always move toward full reconciliation and want that, crave that, work toward that, okay? Um, Now, in the most extreme cases, there are certainly situations the Bible envisions in which there can be grievous sin, actual forgiveness, and no reconciliation in the sense of of restored relationship. Yeah. So I, I I would understand the Bible to teach that adultery, sexual immorality, particularly its expression in adultery, you know, uh, provides grounds for divorce, where where it's not that we're encouraged to divorce, it's recommended that we divorce, but it's permitted by the Lord. So a spouse can commit adultery on their spouse, and the Lord Jesus will tolerate or permit divorce in that situation. I would still say you need to forgive your spouse, hmm. but I'm not saying you have to remain married to mm-hmm. that spouse now. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a pretty extreme case. Most of the time, though, this is with more kind of smaller garden variety type type sins and and and, and squabbles and things like that between couples. And I usually the husband or the wife obviously they must forgive, and they should be eager to move to a restored relationship as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And I would just recognize there are some instances in which the restored relationship really can't be granted, mm-hmm. or there's some some large reason why it cannot be, you know, repaired. Hmm. In most cases, that's not the case. So yeah, so it just depends on the individual instance. Yeah. But those would be the principles I'm yeah. going to throw out Yeah, there. I think another principle to add to that is is the idea that sin has consequences. Yeah, yeah. We see that throughout Scripture. Yeah. I mean, certainly David was forgiven in the context of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, mm-hmm. but that sin had grave consequences oh, yeah. on his on his life and his kingdom, mm-hmm. and even his relationship with God. There, there was there was time for restoration there. Well, well, here's an example, like with trust, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a wife who um, cannot be trusted financially to 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 to. Uh, um, not overspend on the budget or something like that, mm-hmm. you know. Well, and and here's here's the wife, and now she's she's overspent again, and she comes to her husband. Look, I've done this. I know I was not supposed to go over the budget. I did. Would you forgive me? There is no option not to forgive your wife in that situation. Right. But then, would it be legitimate after you know this goes on for a while for the husband to say, "Look, we need to put some safeguards in place. You know, I just don't trust that you." You can do this without overspending, you know. Mm-hmm. So we're going to put a budget in place and maybe a spending limit on the credit card or whatever. That's fine. 
Similarly, if you have a husband who's struggling with internet pornography or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, we're getting ready to talk about that at, at Emmanuel, and he c- doesn't have the self-control not to look at internet pornography, well, the wife can forgive him 70 times, seven times. But it'd be legitimate for her to say, look, I don't, I don't trust that you can be alone with the laptop at night. Mm. Why don't we devise a system where you kind of turn the laptop in when you get home from work or we put internet protection on there or something like that? Because I, I just don't trust that you have the power to, to, to beat this sin on your own. That's fine. Mm-hmm. That, that's not somehow, that sin has consequences. Yeah. You know, so, so those would be two kind of obvious illustrations of the principle we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Alex, I want to wonder if you can speak to uh, young couples or uh, uh, newly married couples or couples that are about to embark into marriage. Just one piece of advice you would give to them. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's what we've already said and and that is that um, t- typically I, I want couples to be more realistic and more aware of how the dynamics of sin affect relationships and how how present and even prominent sin will be in marriage. And um, I don't want them to underestimate sin and its power and its presence. And I also don't want them to underestimate the power of grace and all the things grace can do over the course of, of, of 30 years together, 40 years together, 50 years together. And blessed be God, the way this works is that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And so I want couples to be aware of the dynamics of sin, but have larger eyes to the power of grace and, and what it can do. Brothers and sisters, with that, we're out of time. We love you. Alex, thank you for your time. Thanks.